Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 74. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter, up in the North Pole. Oh, it's cold up here in the North Pole, man. <laughs> Actually, it is cold here in Georgia for the first time this year. Some 30 degree weather last night. Yeah, I think the North Pole came to us. Yeah, finally. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. When I took take my trash out this morning before I went to work, I was like, oh, it's frosty. Hooray, finally. Yeah. A little bit of ice on the porch or something. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people don't like winter cold, but I'm sorry. I, I'm a cold person. I like winter. The only thing that really is getting to me that is that the food that I keep in the refrigerator is freezing. And then it's not thawed by the time I'm trying to eat it for lunch. <laughs> That's the what little pet peeve your, in the... Your food in your refrigerator is freezing? Yeah. Well, it's food that was like in the freezer first, but then we moved oh, over oh, to oh, the oh. fridge, and it is never thawed. It's sitting in the fridge. Well, I can't help. I you mean, like I, be- I could basically just put ice cream in the refrigerator at this point, and it would stay fine. Um, <sighs> is your house really cold? I mean, doesn't a refrigerator keep the same temperature all year long? I would think so, but it's defying the laws of nature. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. Like bowling alleys, pool halls, and now refrigerators. Yeah. Physics-defying things. Yep, all right. So uh, we got some Christmas subjects to come up here because, you know, it is the season. It is the season. I'm actually surprised we didn't talk about this on Equinox before. Have we not talked about a Christmas-specific science-related thing before? I, I, no. It's hard to believe out of 74 episodes. No, we have not. I don't remember what we did last December, but nope, we have not. Craziness. So we figured we are going to do the science of Christmas because there's a couple of really cool aspects of this season that have scientific questions associated with them. Yeah. 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 But, but before we get to that, yes, I think we owe it to everybody to uh, have a little bit of a corner for Bequinox. Yeah. Yeah. You, you ready to talk <laughs> about it? <laughs> oh, no, I'm crying. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let me tell you, I'll tell you my sad story first. Well, okay. My sad story is the same as yours, I think. Okay. So who goes first? Go ahead. I've been thinking it over and uh, looking at all the evidence, and I'm thinking that the bees left because in the hive, I just have a few dead bees and the original honeycomb. Okay. And they consumed everything in there, and then they left. Like there's no evidence of like an an utter catastrophe of bees that all died of starvation. Like there's just nobody home. I think that they swarmed and they up and left. Okay, uh, that's possible, but it's late in the season for a swarm. Mm, fair enough. My bees, same thing. And I knew it was coming, and I tried to head it off, and I might have killed them accidentally. I was I'm always looking for rural mites just just to see. Yeah, and I never saw any bees, but. Sometime a couple months ago, I saw some workers pulling out some pupae that had mites on them. And they're laying them out in the front of the beehive. I'm like, oh my, I've got a big problem. Because if they're pulling them out, that means there's an awful lot of mites on the inside. And I'm like, well, I tried to go the all-natural route. I said, you know, if as long as my bees are happy and healthy and warm and dry and they got enough space and they're not stressed, then I don't need to use all those chemicals that everyone else uses. You know, I'm going to be the organic beekeeper, you know. Well, then I started thinking, this is a foreign species that doesn't belong in America anyway. And I'm trying to get them to do something they wouldn't normally do in the wild. Hmm. And there are foreign invaders like the mites and the other mites and, and other things that don't belong here. And then there's wax mobs and then there's 
um, all sorts of diseases, viral and bacterial diseases. And, and, you know, I don't live on a farm. They don't get a lot of food where it had a huge dearth in the middle of, of July. Yeah, it was not the greatest for their nectar supply around here. No, no. And I watched the weight of the beehive go down. I knew that they would drained their resource. So I started feeding them, but I went ahead and got some, um, uh, uh, it's oxalic acid or wood bleach. I used to have some for the wood shop and I threw it away. So I went and got some more. And there's two ways you can apply oxalic acid. One is you can put it in a heater and smoke your beehive. Mm. And that will prevent the queen from laying for a couple days. And it'll kill all the mites that are uncapped or that are, you know, around. If they're kept in a cell, it won't kill them. Okay, yeah. Or you can dissolve it in liquid and then pour it into the hive down between the combs. So that's what I did because I didn't have a smoker. And I think I poured it on a little too thickly and I had some dead bees in the bottom of the hive. And then within a short time, I saw all this activity outside my hive. I mean, furious activity. And I said, those are not my bees. Whoa. Because I didn't have that many bees. And sure enough, they're getting robbed like mad. Oh. And so I put a block in front of the entryway, a block of one entry completely other. And I just had a just little teeny crack so my bees could defend their own hive. And it didn't work. And over the course of about a week, all the activity went away and I literally had no bees flying in and out of my hive. So th- that could have happened in my case too, but I never saw any evidence of the the robbery going on, you know. Well, what evidence would you look for? The bees that are like leaving the box with nectar. Can you see nectar? Or with, you know, with something. What you look for is flight patterns and fighting on the on the front of the hive. But if your colony is too weak, they, they can't put up resistance. They don't fight. Yeah. And I did look and I saw some wrestling. Oh, those bees are wrestling. They're getting robbed. Oh, no, that's that was my clue. But I think they just got completely overwhelmed by a much stronger colony. <sighs> I don't know where that colony is. I know the direction the bees are flying, but I have no idea where that other colony is. Okay. Could be another beekeeper or could be a wild in a tree. Don't know. And, and it certainly could have happened in my case, too. I, I checked on the bees not terribly long ago, and they were fine. Uh, when I opened it up, I had the 10 frames that were full from top to bottom, and there were a lot of bees just chilling. Yeah. A lot of honey cells. and Yeah. So if they got attacked and robbed, it, it must have happened in the spell of about three weeks. Well, it could be a day or two. Right. Once they get you know seriously overwhelmed, that other colony is going to be merciless. Yeah. <sighs> Hmm. Yeah, I don't know the answer because I didn't see it directly happening because I was traveling a lot at the time too. All I know is one day I came home and there was no bees flying in and out of my hive. I was like, oh man. Hmm. So what are you going to do next year? Are you going to order bees again? Yeah, we're going to get going again. Okay. Uh, maybe okay. have another Good. beehive box. Uh, use this one plus another t- uh, style. I'm interested in using the... Yeah, like like the normal style. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like him. That Rob's experimental. I like them both, <laughs> but I like, I like Rob's experimental journey more. Yeah. Except that it's just going to be harder to collect the honey. Uh, that at the end, yes, yeah, that's the only downside that I really can practice. Yes, I don't like the look of the traditional. I'm getting the terms mixed. The up. Langstroth hives, Langstroth, yeah, because I want to call yeah, it the Langstroth hives. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, and I'm to- still unconvinced that that's a proper bee space. And I was thinking, you know, the, it's the architecture of the hive itself that leads to the breeding of the mites and the pests and all that stuff. If you change the architecture, then all those things will go down. And yeah, well, that, that was maybe a pipe dream. Hmm. Well, we performed a science experiment with bees. 
It might be that that if you want to intensely farm something, that you have to literally intensely farm it. You can't let it go by itself and expect intensive agriculture or bee culture. Just saying. All right. Well, then moving on, we have this other story about uh, the Christmas story and the science behind it. Let's talk about something pleasant. It's my favorite holiday. Is it yours? Uh, not particularly. Okay. Okay. It's okay. Well, then tell, or, or at least the historical events got to be high on your list. Oh, I love the historical parts. Yeah. And the signs behind it. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. What on earth is that talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is puzzled people for a that's the christmas story you know it is a christmas story and actually i'm going against the outline i just had that in front of me so i decided to read it so let's do that one first okay the the star of bethlehem you know, beautiful beautiful star star of bethlehem do, 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 do. Mm-hmm. i don't know if you know that song i don't know that one i know a lot of songs but not that one okay well that's a star of bethlehem song that we used to sing at church um what was it take a guess What's your what's your gut feeling? Oh, okay. So the Star of Bethlehem. Yeah, I'm gonna go with. Uh, I want to say it was a miracle, like it was real, but also visible and temporary, but and not like some phenomenon of coincidence where a comet was zooming by and just happened to look like the Star of Bethlehem. Because it, oh. It, the theory is it had to be... You mean it, it wasn't Venus in a particular constellation that went backward? Because, you know, retrograde motion, right? So it went backward at one point, and that's when it reappeared? No, because it had to be a constant. For how long? Well, exactly. Exactly. Why would God even uh, do this? Like, you, you have everything in constant motion in the solar system. What did he do with Venus? He just, like, hit the pause button on Venus while everything else kept traveling and... Suspended Venus to follow planet Earth in a particular fashion until uh, since such a date. Like, no, he didn't need to do that. Well, I'm disappointed, Joe, because, um, yeah, I, I want to burst your bubble, but you've already had it bursted. So, <laughs> 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 and I imagine a lot of the analytical types that listen to our podcast would not be persuaded by uh, some of the other ideas. Throw them like, out there. Just a couple of years ago, there was a Star of Bethlehem DVD. Remember when that went around? Yeah. Everyone was talking about the Star of Bethlehem DVD. I did. Um, I got asked by it by a lot of people. We actually have an article on creation.com that I I helped review before it got put up. And it was a guy who took an astronomy program, a computer program, and rolled it backwards to about the time of Jesus and looked around for important astronomical happenings. And he concluded, ah, in... XBC, Venus was exactly here. It was like in the in the Lion constellation or something. It's been a long time, so I don't really remember. But and then X number of months later, it was here, and therefore, the, and it had this whole story of the kingship and Judah and the lion, and it was persuasive. It got to the point where I actually wrote the, the software company that made that program. I said, "How accurate are your algorithms?" If I wanted to go 2,000 years in the future, 2,000 years in the past, how accurate would the location of this planet be? And they said, oh, plus or minus one or two seconds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, okay then. I guess your, your math works out. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. But, but as you said, the, the main problem with all of the speculations about what the Star of Bethlehem is, 
you have to take in all aspects of the account. Yeah, yeah. so the aspect, the main aspect uh, that bothers me is, is this idea that something would just be a constant for much longer than we ever see constants in the sky. Okay. You know, it'd be like having a total eclipse for three years or something. You know, like it's not, it's not going to happen. Well, no, because it appeared to them and to the wise men and then it reappeared to them. It wasn't there the whole time. Oh, okay. So that's confirmed? Well, well right here. Um, then Herod, after the acquired the wise men of, of where the Messiah would be born, they said, oh, in Bethlehem. And Herod summoned the wise men and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, interesting. That would means in the past. And Herod didn't notice it. They noticed it. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. So you have to account for all aspects. One is it reappears, but two, it directs them to a specific house. Now, even if I had an astrolabe, even if I had a sextant, I could not take any astronomical measurements that would fix the location over a specific house. Wow, yeah. Even if I was trying to look at something as directly overhead at exactly midnight, you know, that star, wherever that is, exactly at midnight, if I can get to the point of the earth is exactly under the star, I'll be at some location. Um, plus or minus what measurement error? Yeah, like if, you're, if I'm just looking straight up in the sky, even uh, when the sun appears to be right overhead, I, I couldn't say that my accuracy would be good enough to tell that the sun was truly right over top of Georgia at that time. Exactly. Even if you had some measuring instrument, you, you wouldn't be able to get that accurate to a house. You would probably wouldn't be able to get accurate to Bethlehem. You probably wouldn't be able to get accurate to Jerusalem area. You might be able to get within, what, 50 miles, 100 miles? I don't know. But I can't imagine anyone would have some scientific instrument that could be that accurate. But And they didn't. They saw it, and it led them to a house. And so, upon careful consideration, I have to reject the comet hypothesis, anything that deals with planets, anything that deals with planetary alignments or stars or constellations. It, I just can't hold that. But there's another question. Who are the Magi? Oh, that's a good one. And where they come from. We know where they came from. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay, what's east of Jerusalem? A whole bunch of desert. <laughs> Jordan, yeah. Syria, Iraq. Oh, wait. What's in Iraq? A city called Babylon. Yeah. Weren't they the descendants of Esau? Did I hear that once? That they were the Edomites or something like that? Well, the Edomites do live over there, yeah. But I'm, I'm going to a more recent time in history, about 700 or 600 or 500 years, depending on which we're talking about. Uh, but 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed and the captives were taken east to Babylon. Okay. Daniel was already there. There were several different waves of, of captivity and Daniel was taken in an earlier wave. And Daniel is the chief of the Magi in Babylon. So you think that there might be a connection to the descendants of those Jews that were in Babylon or something? I, I, I am speculating. 
that there was an intellectual tradition of scholarship, and it might even have been Jewish Jewish scholars. That's a pretty good guess. These Magi might have been Jews coming from Babylon or that area, and they either had Daniel's writings, or they had a miraculous sign, or something, something clued them that, hey, something has happened and we need to go and find the Messiah. That's pretty radical, man. <laughs> that really is. So maybe it was, you know, Daniel's prophecy of weeks. And they're like, okay, um, we got did all the calculations. It's sometime around now. And, oh, look at this magical thing that just appeared in the sky. And it wasn't a planetary alignment. It wasn't a clock. It wasn't, you know, the fourth time the sun travels through such and such. Because the same star that appeared to them at first reappeared to them and then hovered over a home. Or somehow led them to a house. And it was to the point where they could walk into a specific home. That's not normal stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen a light like that from the sky. No, me neither. And anytime that any modern person would imagine such a thing, they would think that UFOs were involved. They wouldn't think that there was a sign of the Messiah being born. Yeah, no. So you and I are of the same mind, interestingly. I didn't quite expect that. No, yeah, no. I, I basically have always kind of thought this way. I, I never really thought that it could be a natural phenomena. Yeah, it had to be a supernatural sign that could move as need be. But it had to be given to people who were expecting it or who knew what it was when it appeared. Right. And, it, I, and I had overlooked the fact that it had come and went. Ah. But, but also, they saw a sign. They didn't have an angel appearing to them saying, go to Jerusalem where the king of the world is born. He's the Messiah. They didn't have that. They saw a sign. And so it had to register on minds that were prepared to receive that sign, which is why I said there was some, probably some intellectual tradition of expectation. And they somehow read the signs correctly. And sure enough, the Messiah was there in Bethlehem, the city of David, the town of David, shall I say. That is phenomenal. Yeah. Anyway, if you want uh, readers, listeners, I should say, listeners, if you want more information on the Star of Bethlehem, uh, just there's a link in the show notes, so just go to creation.com and type in Star of Bethlehem. There's an article there by Lita Kosner, excellent article, just a review of the Star of Bethlehem DVD that was really popular about 10 years ago. And I, I contributed it to that article also, so it, it, it's a good read. Good stuff. I've read it too. I, I really appreciate it. Now that explains the star. What other science related subject could there possibly be concerning Christmas? <laughs> concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the means of his conception, maybe? Oh! <laughs> All right, let's talk about genetics. I thought you were going to get to how to reindeer fly, but yeah, go ahead. No, 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 man. No, 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 no. We're talking Bible here. The genetics of Jesus. Very speculative. People are debating this for a long time. Now, since the invention or the discovery of genetics, now we can actually have a genetic argument. But in the past, people were speculating, you know, how can, uh, who is Jesus? Is he Joseph's son? No. Jesus' adopted son, yeah. Is he Mary's son? Well, see, back for most of human history, people didn't believe that the woman contributed anything to childbirth. She was just a little oven that kept the baby warm and cooked the baby until it came out. And the man was the one who provided the material for the child. That is most of human history. They didn't know what eggs were. So it was Mary's child because she bore it, but people wouldn't have said it was Mary's child genetically. Yeah, good point. 
today we know about genetics. We know the mother contributes half a genome, the father contributes half a genome. But the Bible is very clear that Joseph was not the physical father. Jesus was his adopted son, not his physical son. Okay, now what about Mary? Where'd she get the Y chromosome from? Hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Hmm. So it's not parthenogenesis. I mean, fish and, and some uh, crayfish and uh, some insects that can reproduce, some, not all fish, but a, a couple of fish species, they can reproduce parthenogenically. The females don't need males, but they only produce females because they don't have any Y chromosomes amongst them. So obviously, God had to create a Y chromosome. So obviously, God had to create some genetic material and put it into Mary. Then the other question is, did Mary contribute anything at all? I want, I want to say that she had to have. Well, theologically, yes or no. That's an interesting question. Yeah, it could, it could go different ways with theology. But her, the fact that her body was used to grow the baby within her womb, yeah, that's why I'm thinking genetic makeup from Mary has to be a part of that baby. Eh, maybe I, I, I wouldn't say that's the reason. Okay, most people say no, and probably people listening to this right now, yelling into the microphone, into their speakers right now. But Jesus has to be a descendant of David. Therefore, well, therefore what? Mary. He was he was adopted by Joseph. Therefore, he's a legitimate descendant of David. Oh, just by adoption. He didn't even have to be genetically. Okay. It doesn't have to be genetic. We didn't know anything about genetics until recently. This is a, a new argument. You could not have made this argument 100 years ago. It's a new argument. Oh, yeah. It has to be from Mary. Well, well no. Only, only, only modern people can make that. So, he ha- he's adopted by Joseph. That's where he comes into Israel. Mary could have given DNA, an egg, and then God could miraculously have I fertilize that egg and it can grow. Or God could have just put fertilized egg that he made from scratch. Now, I know this sounds heretical and I know people are getting uncomfortable listening to this. I'm just saying from first principles, you can't exclude either possibility. And we can't actually know because we don't have Jesus's body. We can't do any DNA. Wow, that's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. But he didn't have Viking DNA and he didn't have African DNA or Southeast Asian DNA he you know, no one ever remarked that man this guy looks funny no he he looked like a, a jewish man so if god engineered any dna at all he would have would have had to put jewish like genetic factors in that dna whether he took dna from mary or not so mary could contribute half but the other half had to be middle eastern type dna or jesus would not have looked like a normal middle easterner yeah not brown flowing hair and blue eyes and white skin <laughs> So every so it was the tallest, lightest skin, blondest hair, bluest eyed person in the movie. <laughs> yes, yes. Ah, arg. So, yeah, th- there's another thing that I'm working on. I wanted to have a an article for this for creation.com for this Christmas. Somebody else wrote the Christmas Day article, and then I was told that it's a little too speculative, so I need to put it in the journal Creation first. That's where we put all the speculative stuff. Oh, okay. It's the question of the genealogies in Luke and in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 1 has a genealogy of, of Jesus, and so does Luke chapter 3. And they're different lists of names. There's two names in the middle that are the same. And they both start with David, but they even end with different men at the end. And so people have argued about this for a long, long, long time. I mean, there's lots of fighting about this. 
the skeptics will even say, see, the Bible's wrong. It can't even get the name straight. <laughs> but that's ridiculous because the early people who compiled the scriptures, they knew that there was a difference between these two nameless and they didn't have a problem with it. Right. Or they would have rejected one of those gospels as being false. Or they would have tried to modify the nameless and harmonize them. No one did that. So clearly, the people who compiled the Bible understood the difference and why it was there. We just forgot. So one of the traditional, typical answers, and I know it's on creation.com, and, and it's, it's on our, we have a giant um, genealogical chart that shows the two different lineages. Um, one is that uh, Matthew is tracing the lineage of Joseph, but Luke is, tra- is tracing the lineage of Mary. That's a very typical answer. I don't necessarily believe that, but it is a possibility. Another one is that there's just a very complicated uh, history of adoptions and Levirate marriages and things like that. So the, the two trees are both the same, but they just go in different line, lineages because some guy got adopted in the middle of that. Yeah, okay. But here's a third option. Now, uh, J.I. Packer wrote this. I think Piper wrote this. Uh, Machen, who wrote the uh, introductory Greek text that I used to, to learn Greek. He, he wrote this, and they, they said, no, 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 no. They're both Joseph's lineages. Really? I didn't realize that. I thought for sure one of them would have been Mary. Well, one of them is not a genealogy. The other one is a genealogy. Oh. That Luke is an actual genealogy. It's a literal genealogy going through Nathan, a son of David, and all the way down to Joseph. But Matthew is a list of the rightful kings of Judah. Oh. It's not a genealogy. It's when a guy dies with no son, the rightful king skips to another family line. In the same way that if you had, if you just looked like a thousand years from now, right? You're reading in a book and you see a list of all the kings and queens of England. It would be a giant mistake to think that that was a genealogy. Because there were, you know, the War of the Roses and and other things happened and, and there were breaks between different dynasties. It's not a father to son to son to son to daughter to son to son to son relationship. It's not. It's not a genealogy. Wow. Huh. And so if if that hypothesis is true, then Joseph is a direct descendant of David and as, as Luke would state, and the rightful king of Judah. Wow. I don't think I had ever come across that information. That's awesome. Which means that Jesus, as Joseph's adopted son, inherited the title King of the Jews. Right. Now, someone's the King of the Jews. Someone is the son of the son of the son of the son of the son. And, well, guess what? I mean, Joseph's hometown was Bethlehem. That's a tiny little place in the world. And that's where David was from. And so Joseph associating himself with Bethlehem, and if there's going to be a king of the Jews, it's probably going to come from Bethlehem. I mean, how many men are, are, are in Bethlehem? 20 maybe? 50 at the most? I mean, it's, it's a tiny little village. Huh, I hadn't thought about it being that small, but that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, so totally speculative. I'm not saying it's true, but I am suggesting that it's a third option that most people haven't heard of, and it's very interesting. But this means that Mary... Neither of those genealogies are hers, but that frees her up. I mean, her cousin Elizabeth was married to a priest. Was Mary then also a Levite? Wow. She doesn't have to be a descendant of of David. She could be of the priestly line. Does that make Jesus priest and king? Huh. 
Wow. But I mean, Mary, she was very well educated. She wasn't just some farm girl. I mean, when she met um, Elizabeth, the, the section of the Bible, the Catholics call it the Magnificat. It's Mary's speech. And she pulls from all different places in the Bible and all these deep references, some very deep theology in that section. And she's got, she had an, a wonderful, amazing understanding of the Bible. She wasn't a simpleton. She was, she was very well-trained. Now, either the Holy Spirit just empowered her to make all these things. Probably she was a student of the word. Makes sense. Yeah, we didn't even get that kind of delivery from Joseph. <laughs> Joseph never says anything. <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a cipher. He disappears from the scriptures after uh, Jesus is 12 years old. We never hear from him again. <sighs> okay, so is that enough speculation? Are we uncomfortable enough now? This is a rabbit trail, but I'll throw this in there. Thinking about carpenters. Yeah. I read not too long ago that the historians or the archaeologists or both are saying that they think that that first century carpentry meant not woodwork, but like stonemasonry. I've heard that too. Any insight? That kind of defines the family business. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to say because uh-huh. you have to look at the etymology of the word and it might mean workman or skilled workman or carpenter or stonemason or all to above. I, I don't actually know. Okay. But Joseph was a skilled worker and worked with his hands and Jesus also. A lot of the a lot of the, the words that we think are in the scriptures are really not like in I N N. There was no room in the inn. Yeah. No, that's the word for house, not in. Oh, wow. That changes so much because it may not have been an actual uh, like inn. There was no Bethlehem Hotel. <laughs> it wasn't a town with places like that. It was probably there was no room upstairs in the, the typical Jewish house. The three bedroom or the three room house had yet an entryway with a central area for animals, two side wings for storage and stuff like that, and then a staircase to the upstairs level, which was a living space for the family. So they basically lived over their barn, which means it smelled like cow poop all the time. But that's a whole nother story. Mm. They, they lived over their animals. There was no room for them in the house. Yeah. So they slept with the animals downstairs. Now, that's very strange to me because Mary was very pregnant. Yeah. So either there really was no room at all and that they were just packed at the gills of people, or maybe there was some stigma attached to her her pregnancy because mm. news would have traveled from Nazareth down to uh, Bethlehem. Yeah, other people traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem at the same time would have been talking. Yeah, I mean, here, here's Joseph and he marries this woman who's pregnant before they get married. You know, uh, Joseph, what are you doing there, buddy? There's your scuttlebutt. Yeah. And so maybe it was she had a, a, a mark of, you know, black mark against her record. And like, no, no, woman, you sleep downstairs. Wow. Yeah, I, they would have done that. Uh, they they put it past him. Or worse. And plus, I mean, she wasn't, well, she may not even have been a Bethlehemite or a descendant of David if she was a Levite. Oh, okay. I don't know. Just just, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Possibilities. We're going to get a lot of hate mail for this one. <laughs> what you're pointing out is that it is speculative. You can't say that it is fact. But then you're also shedding light on the fact that things like the N are things that we took for granted, but 
really we shouldn't no we shouldn't like that may be wrong about the story entirely oh there's so much this our common understanding of the story i and i hadn't even considered that the star appeared and then disappeared and then came back like yeah. th- th- that had not occurred to me before or how about this how many magi were there three <laughs> <laughs> no it doesn't say three it just says magi i i couldn't say it seriously yeah well, okay they brought three gifts with them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so your typical medieval painting, and in the medieval painting, they try to put all aspects of the story in one frame. Oh, yeah. So there's a star in the background, some camels going across some sand dunes, and then there's three guys, and there's a stable, and Jesus is in a feeding trough, and each of the three guys is holding a gift, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why there's three kings three magi yeah and and so that you don't confuse the shepherds with the magi there has to be two shepherds and three magi so that you can count and you know that those are the shepherds yes but the reason there's three magi is because there's three gifts and one of the magi of course is black because of tradition it was very strange but so the song we three kings i i honestly i can't sing that oh okay because it's just chop full of a lot of fictional details yeah, it doesn't say three. The Bible doesn't say three, and the Bible certainly doesn't say king. They did come from the east, so of Orient are. That's accurate. Yeah. But just, no, man. If you're going to sing a Christmas song, make it real. Make it a biblical song. Anyway. True. Just, just get, okay, I'll get down off my hobby horse now. Calm down, Carter. Just relax. You ought to write some songs for us about the Magi and, and uh, include parts like, this is speculative. Tim Hawkins could do something like that. Yeah. Are you ready for part three? Uh, part three, please. Yes. Part three. Now, did you read this or did you not read this? No. Okay. Uh, you told me you forbade it. <laughs> now, this is a story that's been going around the internet since probably, oh, 1990. It appeared in Spy Magazine in 1990, and people think that they saw it before that, which might be the Mandela effect. I don't know. All oh, right. But no one is exactly certain who develop this but there'll be two links in the show notes one to the story and one to snopes.com which i don't really like snopes.com i think they lean very strongly left but they at least will talk about it in some detail in the background and stuff like that but somebody tried to do an account of the physics of santa and his reindeer and i want to read this in full as part of our christmas story you ready yeah The physics of Santa and his reindeer. No known species of reindeer can fly. <laughs> but there are 300,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified, and while most of these are insects and germs, this does not completely, in all caps, completely rule out flying reindeer, which only Santa has ever seen. Sure. There are 2 billion children, that is, persons under 18 in the world. But, since Santa doesn't appear to handle the Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, and Buddhist children, That reduces the workload to 15% of the total, 378 million, according to the Population Reference Bureau. At an average census rate of 3.5 children per household, that's 91.8 million homes. One presumes there's at least one good child in each. (laughs) Santa has 31 hours of Christmas to work with, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the Earth. So he travels east to west, which seems logical, 
This works out to 822.6 visits per second. This is to say that for each Christian household with good children, Santa has one one thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left, get back up the chimney, get back in the sleigh, and move on to the next house. <laughs> Assuming that each of these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the Earth, which of course we know to be false for the purposes of our calculations we'll accept. We're now talking about 0.78 miles per household, a total trip of 75 and one half million miles, not accounting stops to do what most of us do at least once every 31 hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. This means a Santa sleigh is moving at 650 miles per second, 3,000 times the speed of sound. For purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle on Earth, the Ulysses Space Probe, moves as a pokey 27.4 miles per second. A conventional <laughs> reindeer can run tops 15 miles per hour. <laughs> I tried to read it. Well, I'm waiting for the part where you describe the physics of Santa's toy gift bag. Oh, <laughs> everything gets in there. If every one of the 91.8 million homes with good children were to put out a single chocolate chip cookie and an 8-ounce glass of 2% milk, the total, <laughs> the total calories, need to say any other vitamins and minerals, would be approximately 225 calories, 100 for the cookie, give or take, and 125 for the milk, give or take. Mm. Multiply the number of calories per house by the number of homes, 225 times 91.8 times <laughs> 1 million, I think, we get the total number of calories Santa consumes that night, which is... 200 billion 655 million calories. <laughs> so break it down further. One pound is equal to 3,500 calories. Divide your total number of calories by the number of calories in a pound, whatever that now has a big formula with no commas in there. We get the number of pounds Santa gains at yeah, 5,901,428.6, which is 2,950.7 tons. Now, at this point, I would like to depart from the reading because that's not true. Santa uses those calories to move. <laughs> He's burning off the calories, you see? Okay, back to the story. The payload on the sled adds another interesting element. Oh. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,300 tons, not counting Santa, who is invariably described as overweight. On land, conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. Even granting that, quote, flying reindeer, unquote, see above, could pull 10 times the normal amount. We cannot do the job with eight or even nine. We need 214,200 reindeer. This increases the payload, not even counting the weight of the sleigh, to 353,430 tons. <laughs> Again, for comparison, this is four times the weight of the Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Why would you compare it that way? <laughs> 350,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance. This will heat up the reindeer in the same fashion as spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> the lead pair of reindeer will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. <laughs> in short, they will burst into flame almost instantaneously, exposing the reindeer behind them, creating deafening sonic booms in their wake. The entire reindeer team will be vaporized within 4.26 thousandth of a second. Santa, meanwhile, will be subjected to centrifugal forces 17,500.06 times greater than gravity. A 250-pound Santa, which seems ludicrously thin, will be pinned to the back of his sleigh by 4,315,015 pounds of force. In conclusion, 
if Santa ever did deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he's dead now. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! So that story's been floating around for a long time. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. I laugh every time I read it. It's brilliant. It's, in fact, I've posted that to Facebook many years around this time, just so the world doesn't forget the physics of Santa Claus. That's awesome. But that's not the end of the story. Oh, really? Many, many people are unhappy with this analysis. <laughs> they, they, they're saying that the author simply doesn't have enough faith or simply doesn't understand the physics of Santa. Oh. So, the Research Council of Norway brought in four experts. They sound legit. I look these people up. They really are people. They really are physicists. They're saying, you know, this physics of Santa Claus is out there. And other people are like, no, this, this has to be right. So I can't pronounce the names. Astrophysicist Newt Jorgen Rod Odegaard. <laughs> and each one of the O's has a slash through it. Professor of Physics, Gauta Einoval, Professor of Mathematics, Nils Lid Hjort, and Elf expert, Anna Orvik. <laughs> and they took their job very seriously, according to this website. One of the pe- person says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. See, Santa Claus must have an ion shield. Oh, of course. That was what we were missing. He's not going to burn up due to air resistance. I mean, I mean, he's got no problem climbing down a chimney with a fire burning below. So obviously, he has to be able to handle the heat problem. He has an iron shield of charged particles held together by magnetic fields surrounding his entire sleigh. This is how he solves the heat problem, points out Newt Jorgen Rod Odegaard. Okay. <laughs> that that is, takes care of all of it. Of course. Control the heat problem and everything is out. Forget the weight problem. Oh, but it's even better than that because because likewise, Santa Claus doesn't travel in our four dimensions. Fourth dimension, of course, being time. Oh, snap. He makes use of 11 dimensions. Those dimensions make it quite easy to... Why 11? Why not 12? Well, string theory says that, he, that the universe operates in 26 dimensions. You see? So 11 just... Is, that's all you need. Oh. So you can travel back and forth to the North Pole, pick up your gifts, go back in time, appear places instantaneously. He's not limited... By our space-time continuum. He's Santa Claus. Come on, man. You know, it sounds like it could work, but I would wonder if Santa would just start to get bored because it's going to take many lifetimes just to take care of one Christmas Eve. Oh, that's why he's so old, you see? Yeah. That's every year. He just never gets tired of handling (laughs) toys and delivery. Well, another one of the the physicists. No, no, no. Dude, dude, dude. Einstein equals Santa Claus. Oh. I mean, have you ever looked at Einstein? He's just Santa Claus without his beard, man. Yeah. And once Einstein is Santa Claus, well, he all understands everything about relativity, right? (laughs) You see, Coca-Cola gave us Santa's look in 1930. The fat Santa with the beard and the red cheeks. That is not the classical Santa look. Einstein is actually Santa. He's not Santa Claus. He's Quanta Claus. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) Oh, no, they did it. I'm I'm reading from the article. (laughs) Nice. Oh, I'm not reading them. I'm paraphrasing through the article. Now, here's another problem. Ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, here's a quote from There's so many more people now and so many more good children that there are more gifts and thus more air resistance. Therefore, it is natural to explain the warming up of the polar region with all the extra heat that is released. 
But this problem will solve itself over time because if children are too good, then all the ice at the North Pole will melt. Then there'll be no more winter and thus no more Christmas. Whoa, that's a problem. So it's a self-regulating system. Once you have too many good children, Santa Claus doesn't travel anymore. And once you have enough bad children, that's so it's 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 however many good children there are is enough to balance out the heat problem. There's actually fewer good children than most people would think, you see. Oh yeah. Sorry. I know this is tongue in cheek, and you know, I <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but, but even as a child, I didn't believe in Santa Claus. And Santa Claus is simply not true. And and in fact, okay, ready? I'm actually being a little heretical in what I've saying so far because I didn't qualify this. Oh. There is a figure in history who knows everything, who sees everything, and who judges you for good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. His name is not Santa Claus. His name is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you put that light on it, Santa actually is a heretical figure. Now, I don't want to be a curmudgeon like that. But that's you put it in that phraseology of like, wait a second. Okay. So yeah. I am I'm making very light of Santa and I never taught my children about Santa. But I'm not a total Christmas curmudgeon completely. I mean, you know. Yeah. There's some good things about Christmas. That's true. I mean, if it's our Scrooge even figured that out. Um, there's another thing that that um some of the physicists have suggested. Winter hats are actually telepathic mind reading devices. Oh, come on. I was believing and buying everything until you brought that up. And you know, those, those, those antlers on the reindeer, they, they receive the signals from all the kids and therefore they can filter out the good from the bad. Oh, okay. So they already, so Santa, you know, he, he knows which ones are good and bad and it's sort of like a GPS signal on these hats or something like that. I know that's kind of ridiculous. I like the other ones better, but that was one of the physicists who suggested that. Now, the flying reindeer, you know, okay. well, it's not that big a paradox. Hmm. We know that reindeer don't have wings, right? But Santa Claus, of course, uses vacuum energy. The sleigh and the reindeer use repulsive energy to compensate for the force of ga- gravity and therefore can fly. And as soon as you have flying reindeer, you're already defying all the known laws of physics. Why not violate some more? And therefore, that whole entire passage about Santa, uh, the physics of Santa is wrong. <laughs> of course, you know, Santa could just be your dad with a beard, but you know, that would be heresy. Oh no, 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 no. That no. can't be true. No, 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 no. Dad could never pull it off. There are a lot of fake Santas, we know that, but you know, that that, that does of course doesn't um count. And of course there is the old song, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I always yeah. loved that song. <laughs> okay, well there you have it. I don't have to read anymore. That is from the Research Council of Norway. And our readership can find that, if they like, at fizz.org. Excellent. That is a legit website that posted this, this tongue-in-cheek review from Legit Scientist. Spelled P-H-Y-S.org. Yeah, that's a real scientific reporting website with real-life scientific stuff on it. Well, that was a great story. I'm glad you thought so. I just visualizing it with you. Oh, it's so funny. So everybody, thank you for joining us on this winter Christmas holiday quest. If you would uh, be so awesome as to share Equinox with your friends and family that enjoy podcasts, science subjects, that'd be great. And we write links to anything that Rob brought up that's uh, related directly or tangentially in the show notes so that you can get to things like that article that Rob just read from. 
So check the show notes if you want to get to those links. This episode is 74, so you can also find it on our website, which is nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 74. And you can get more good content from Rob if you want to check out Biblical Genetics, that YouTube channel for his videos. But are you going to go on a, uh, a break here during the holidays, the end of the year? I'm going to come back with January. What are you thinking? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, I know the uh, Christmas week I'll be in Florida. The week after that I won't be. So let's just make it up as we go along. That's what we are doing here. And, uh, you know, you can find me. I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time. Goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And you've been listening to Equinox.